Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Well, hello, and welcome to Talk About Talk. I'm your communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Are you an ambitious manager looking to catapult your career by improving your communication skills? Or maybe you simply have a strong growth mindset. You're always looking to improve your communication skills. Or perhaps both. Well, you're in the right place. At Talk About Talk, we focus on communication skills topics like networking, communicating with confidence, and personal branding. You can access Talk About Talk across a variety of media or resources. There's online corporate training, one-on-one coaching with me, online courses, the free weekly communication skills newsletter, and of course, this bi-weekly podcast. You can choose whatever works for you. And by the way, I encourage you to subscribe to the weekly communication skills newsletter if you're not signed up already. It's like getting free communication skills coaching from me in your inbox once a week. You can sign up on the Talk About Talk website. Okay, welcome to Talk About Talk episode number 71. Today, we're going to focus on a specific element of our personal brand, and that is how much and what to share. Let me quickly back up for a minute. What is personal branding? Well, you can think of personal branding very simply as identity management or reputation management. But here's the definition of personal branding that seems to really resonate with people. Personal branding is what people think and say about you when you're not in the room. And we all have a personal brand. The question is, how actively and strategically are you managing your personal brand? In this episode, we're talking about navigating that tension between transparency and TMI. Transparency as in authenticity and as in bringing your whole self to work. And then how to balance that with TMI or too much information as in the risk of being perceived as unprofessional. Let me ask you this. Do you have rules about what to talk about or not talk about at work? What about what you talk about online? Do you have rules about what to not post on LinkedIn or Instagram? Do you talk about your family when you're at work? Do you talk about your dating status? Why or why not? Hmm, these are important questions. As you may know, I've been doing a lot of thinking and reading and coaching about personal branding lately. So all these kinds of questions are top of mind for me. Recently, I attended a Harvard Women in Leadership conference, and one of the amazing speakers made an offhanded comment. She said, being open and transparent can be your distinct competitive advantage. Ooh, of course, I stopped dead in my tracks. Being open and transparent can be your distinct competitive advantage. That's worth thinking about, isn't it? Then... Fast forward less than a week later, I posted something on LinkedIn about personal branding, and a gentleman named Tom Meganson, whom you'll meet in a moment, responded with a comment that once again stopped me dead in my tracks. Clearly, Tom has thought about this question of transparency versus TMI. I immediately connected with Tom and invited him to be a guest on Talk About Talk. So, here we are. I promise you'll learn something here. I know I did. So I'm going to introduce Tom right now, and then we'll get right into the interview. Then I'm going to summarize at the end. This is what Talk About Talk listeners tell me they like. So that's what you get. You don't need to take notes because I do that for you. Just keep doing whatever you're doing, driving or walking or housework, whatever. I'll summarize everything for you at the end and you can always access the episode show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website. Okay, let me introduce Tom Meganson. As I said, 
Tom's comment on one of my LinkedIn personal branding posts is what made me consider asking him to be a guest for this episode. But when I went to his LinkedIn profile, that's what really nailed it for me. Tom calls himself a creative director, a messaging strategist, and a seasoned storyteller. Wow, that is exactly the guy we need to talk to. And if you listen to the Talk About Talk episode on optimizing your LinkedIn profile with Andrew Jenkins, you'll remember there are three main things that you need to get right. First, your headshot. Second, your title. And third, your background image. So if you go to LinkedIn right now and check out Tom Meganson, you'll see his headshot is a really unique sort of creative looking black and white or maybe sepia photo that shows him with a pensive look on his face. And his title is what I just told you, creative director, messaging strategist, and seasoned storyteller. And his background image is the corner of a book by Jane Goodall called Cousin, We Need to Talk. And it's autographed by Jane with Dear Tom, thank you, and signed her name. Wow, I was intrigued. So I'm sharing this with you as an example of where your LinkedIn profile can open up opportunities. Specifically, these three elements, the headshot, the title, and your background image can make a huge difference. It shifted me from considering Tom as a guest to asking him. And I'm so grateful that he said yes. Tom Meganson is a strategic messaging consultant at That's a Good Story as in that'sagoodstory.com. Cool name, right? Tom's been a professional copywriter for more than 30 years, 25 of them as a creative director in Canadian advertising agencies. Tom's often called upon as a subject matter expert on a variety of topics, including branding, social marketing, and public affairs advertising. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us to talk about personal branding, authenticity, and TMI. Thank you very much, Andrea. As I was explaining to the listeners, we recently met on LinkedIn and you responded to a post that I created about how to communicate your personal brand online. And you actually took the time to write a comment that ended up leading to this interview. I'm just going to read the comment here quickly. So you said, my personal brand is just the professional face that I've always shown to the world. Now a bit more worn and wise than when I began my career in the 90s. Deciding what to show of myself is easy. What's important, in my opinion, is to always ask oneself, is this TMI and is this relevant to my audience? So we've all seen or heard TMI and we know it when we see it, but what is TMI? Well, it's, it's an interesting one. I'd said two things there. Is this TMI? Is this relevant to my audience? And I think the latter one is probably more specific. Too much information means different things to different people. But what I'd like to start out with is to say, is this relevant to my audience is probably the number one thing that people should keep in mind. It, it's really easy for us as human beings when we're in a one-to-one -one communication, even on a video screen here as, as we're having this interview, and to take the cues from the people. Even when you're doing public speaking, you, you see the people you're talking to, you can tell if they're bored, you can tell if they're hanging on your every word. On social media, you don't see the people you're talking to. And it's very similar to me to the way that we approach advertising. So I've been in advertising and, and copywriting for 30 years now. And doing that, you're always thinking about an audience you can't see because you are speaking on behalf of a brand, you're speaking on behalf of a company, a CEO, that kind of thing. And not being able to see the audience, you have to visualize the audience. And this is something that's second nature to those of us who do this for a living. 
but it's not necessarily second nature to everyone else. And so if there's one thing I wanted to get across, it's the idea of your audience and knowing your audience. Knowing what their prejudices are is going to be key to you getting what you want from them. I I love your answer. First of all, the TMI, the too much, maybe a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not about quantity. It's about the substance or the content of the information. So that's a great point. And also your point, which I've been saying in a slightly different context, when we're thinking about our personal brand, we can take a lot of learnings about product branding. And you're saying, here's an example of that, actually. When we're managing a product brand, we're always thinking about the audience and presenting ourselves for the audience, the consumer, the customer. Whereas for ourselves, we're not always doing that. So I think that's that's an excellent point, and we should be doing that. So is TMI always a bad thing, though? And speaking for myself, but most of us have been in a situation where we've said something and then gone, oops, I think that may have been TMI. Can we turn it into something good? I think it depends, once again, on the audience's definition of TMI. So there are times when it's a good idea to make an audience uncomfortable and get them out of their comfort zone. Um, An excellent example is talking about mental wellness and people saying they need help. Maybe their only network is an online network, including even LinkedIn. So an ask for help on LinkedIn, there might be some who consider that TMI. I don't. I consider it very relevant. Other things, when people talk about racism, experiencing racism, ableism, sexism, homophobia, you know, we're trying to have a civilization here and we're trying to stamp these things out. So personally, on my personal brand, I don't mind making people uncomfortable about that. Hmm. But there are other things that do make people uncomfortable One of the big ones for me is about how a person shows themselves online, both in words and images. Generally, I find it it has to do with the person's age, although not always. People seem to blur the lines between the different social media. Mm. You know, if you go back to some of the earlier blogs, those were about confessional. You knew that your audience was your peers. We were psychographically aligned. You could be a little more unguarded. Also, I mean, things like Instagram, they're, they're fairly private. You know, you can control who sees what you do. Right. When you get into LinkedIn, which is where we met, and which is yeah. <laughs> I, what I'm mostly uh, thinking about here, it's very hard to control the sharing of your voice and image on LinkedIn. You can control who you're connected with. But if the people you're connected with comment on your post like it, uh, engage with it in any way, it often shows up in the most unlikely places. Those are the times when I think that as you are dealing with an intergenerational audience, uh, you have to be, or you don't have to be, you might want to consider being cautious about playing into their prejudices about generational stereotypes. Mm -hmm. For example, I've seen some really great thoughts put out there by young entrepreneurs on LinkedIn, but they usually include a beauty shot of themselves. Um, (laughs) Sometimes the guys are flexing, the women are pouting. It's appropriate for their generation, right? I'm, I'm absolutely not saying this is inappropriate. What I'm saying is once again, know your audience. Know that if you're totally comfortable with that being the brand that is seen by your potential employers, by your, your aunt who you forgot that was linked to you, go for it. You know, fill your boots, as they say in the Maritimes. But 
At the same time, understanding your audience's biases, you can make sure that the message that you're presenting, that you have control over that message. Which might not be possible to your previous point, right? Okay, there's so much to unpack there. Let's talk about the age thing across generations. So I had this experience actually just a couple of weeks ago where a friend, actually a professional colleague of mine, was posting photos of herself wearing a bikini And another one of my friends, who's a little bit older, said, wow, that is just shocking that she would do that. And I I said, you know what? You're not her target market. Like, this this is her talking to her people. And she's a very healthy person, and she was showing her beautifully healthy body. So why do you think it is that Gen Y and Gen Z are so much more open and prone to what we Gen Xers, you and I, might say qualifies as TMI? Why is that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, working with market research, I realized that demographics are, are necessarily stereotyped. And stereotypes are both bad and good. Stereotypes allow us to code switch and, and be able to speak to people in their language in a way that, like I said, is relevant to them. I, I just wanted to preface that once again, saying I'm not shaming or blaming anyone for their age or definitely not for their cohort. But there are clear demographic stereotypes that we see. They don't apply to everyone, but they're generalizations. And I'm 50 years old. I've been uh, actually writing professionally for 30 years now. I have worked with five generations. So the silent generation, my mom's generation, the boomers, Generation X, which is mine. I was born right in the middle of that cohort. Millennials. And now Gen Z, whatever you want to call them. My son's one. I have a teenage son. These generations, there are stereotypes that don't apply to everyone, but which are studied by marketers. So if you look at the oldest, the silent generation, they are very formal. My former boss was one of them. They are very formal. They are suit and tie. They are very guarded, extremely guarded. Their professional face is very much contrived. It's conformist. Mm-hmm. And that was the, reinforced, right? If, if they didn't do that, you, you would be penalized somehow. Yeah. Absolutely. We're talking about the 50s and 60s here. Then the baby boomers get to be more laid back. You have Richard Branson cutting people's ties off because he didn't think it was appropriate to have a tie. And there are a lot of stereotypes about being cool, you know, um, you know, riding a motorcycle, wearing jeans to work and this kind of thing. But my own experience with people born in the post-war era and, you know, up till Beatlemania is that they are still very guarded. Some of the generational research I did for a client once, they were talking about how uh, if you're a baby boomer in an office, you should be the first one there in the morning and the last one who leaves. How that is translated to what I've seen in my own career is people are very shy about being vulnerable or called out, about uh, saying the wrong thing, about saying anything vaguely political. And this is the irony, right? Because we're talking about that generation who were hippies or the me generation of the 70s, anything that causes you to stand out is to be avoided. You know, it's that, that thing of the nail that sticks up. Yeah, or the, ta- the tall poppy syndrome. If you stand up, you're going to get chopped down, right? Yeah. That's it, total, tall poppy, yeah. So fast forward, people born in the late 60s and 70s, even up to 1980, the generation X. The stereotype of our generation is cynicism. The stereotype of our generation is a certain anti-authoritarianism, I would say. So we're kind of in between. Of course, every generation thinks it's all about them, but 
<laughs> to me, we're the ones who really needed to learn what I mentioned earlier, which is code switching. You're in the boss's office, you sit up straight, you speak formally to them, you uh, are in a, uh, the office of a fellow Gen Xer, you got your feet on the desk, you're slouching in the chair, you're, you know, whatever. And then the next generations come along. It's not that they're fundamentally different people, it's that their cultural experience of growing up has been very different. So when you get into the millennial generation, they grew up in a different environment. Their parents were boomers. Their parents were very old Gen Xers, early Gen Xers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing is, they grew up in a very different era culturally. There's this idea of protecting children, of encouraging children, which is great. But the negative stereotypes, people make jokes about participation medals. Right. People make jokes <laughs> about not keeping score in soccer games. The stereotype says that people have been told, you are awesome. Nothing that you do is wrong. So while our generation was busy trying to be cool to the millennials and be formal to, <laughs> to the boomers, we had folks coming in who immediately uh, expected to have things be about them, which is great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about that. But at the same time, I did find that people were in general, less able to take criticism. And that to me is a red flag because what that red flag says is that it's going to be harder to learn how to adapt, how to fit in, not to conform, but how to adapt to different people. Anyway, so here we are today, you know, the new generation coming up, you know, the oldest of them are, are in their 20s now, but there are things that I don't really have a problem with, but don't speak to me like inspiration posts, validation. And by validation, I don't mean, you know, you're validated because you're a woman or because you have a disability. I mean, just, I'm not feeling great today. Can you tell me how great I am? And I see that more on Twitter, but it bleeds over into LinkedIn. I was just going to say, I've seen that on Instagram. It's an interesting yeah, phenomenon. I, yeah. Well, it's, it's a culture and there's no right or wrong culture. But this is where we get back to the audience. For example, I am a guest lecturer at colleges sometimes. And I will say to the students, hey, you know, you want to get networking, send me a connection, I'll connect with you, you know, because I can give you a start. And so as soon as they're connected to me, they're also connected with those five generations. <laughs> they are connected to people all the way up into their 70s. It's not, I'm not saying to them, stop being yourself. I'm just saying, be aware of that. I was talking to someone the other day and it occurred to me, I don't think that personal branding is a construct. I don't think we construct our personal brand. What we do is we filter it. Uh. And that's a really important differentiation for me. You know, I try to be authentic all the time. I filter myself. I'm different on Twitter than I am on LinkedIn. I have filters. I have a client filter. I have a talking to students filter. I even have a filter for talking to people of different ages because I have to be aware I'm a 50-year-old white man. You know, I reek of privilege. I want to filter that with at least some kind of acknowledgement of self-awareness. So filter sounds funny now thinking about like Instagram and, and TikTok and that kind of That's thing. That's true. Or it's a double on yeah, yeah. Talking to the judge as a cat. 
Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, but I mean, I mean a literal filter. I mean, yeah. not yeah. showing a hundred percent of yourself to everyone because you can't do that anyway. We do it in real life. We do it when we're visiting our parents. Of course. Not, yeah. And being with familiar coworkers is not the same as we'd be at uh, a professional mixer, which is what LinkedIn is. Yeah. Um, so that's what's really important to me. It's just get the filter right. Figure out who your audience is. That reminds me, I have to tell you this quick story. I was on LinkedIn, I think it was about three years ago at the time and still now. I'm, I'm also a painter. And so a lot of my connections on LinkedIn are also are artists and many of them are marketers. And I remember this experience I had where one of the marketing professors that I follow posted a really cool video. It was like a visual puzzle. It's hard to describe it, but the video ended up showing something that wasn't what you thought it was. He had like 2000 likes on it or whatever. And I thought that's beautiful and insightful and it's creative and all these things. So I reposted it and I got some likes and some positive comments. And then this guy lambasted me who I used to work with like 15 years ago. And he said in the comments publicly to me, he said, shame on you, Andrea. You should know this is not Facebook. This is not Instagram. This is not where you post your pretty pictures. And so I immediately went into messaging privately and said, great to hear from you. Thank you so much for your comments. By the way, I'm an artist and I'm still a marketer. And as far as I was concerned, this is relevant to both of those audiences. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was originally posted by a professor and liked by thousands. And I, I don't understand what the issue is, but I, I respect whatever. And then he lambasted me again. So I blocked him. <laughs> yeah. Well, at that point, I mean, at the end of the day, you can scroll on. You can, you can move on. I think there's starting to be a change of conversation on social media about this saying, you know what, just because someone's wrong in your mind, you don't have to engage them. I would say the example you're giving, that's out of line. Once again, I mean, do what you want to do. Have the brand that you want. I have friends who are, their business is fitness. Their product is their body. I get it. Uh, or other, you know, artists, absolutely. They want to show their art. Photographers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the photography is a little saucy. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, that's their brand, right? That's yeah. their brand. If they're showing a bunch of saucy photos, they're probably not looking to photograph a stodgy CEO. Yeah. I love your comment. I have to say you're going to be quoted on this, the filtering, filtering, like I am who I am. I am authentic. This is 100% me, but I am filtering. I think that's really an empowering perspective, right? Because it's not changing who you are, but it is filtering what part of who you are you're sharing with the different audiences. And I, I also love your comment about code switching across generations. And I've, I did some previous podcasts and newsletters on choosing which media is appropriate. And then I, I got all sorts of emails from listeners and telling me stories about, you know, like a, a, an older gentleman sent me an email and he told me the story about how he had a big contract to award. And he told the sales guy like three or four times, call me, call me. And the guy kept emailing him back and emailing him, what else do you need to know? What else do you need to know? And he's like, this is the last time I'm saying this, pick up the phone and call me. And the guy never did. And he just, he awarded the contract to someone else. So part of it is, you know, your personal brand and what you're sharing about yourself. But then this code switching between the generations, even not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it across what medium, right? That's exactly it. I mean, we all make mistakes, right? We feel strongly about something and we make a comment. We probably shouldn't. And that's where the filter breaks. Oh, geez, I just 
put that on LinkedIn. I mean, TMI. Yeah, I was just going to ask, do you have any stories? My mistakes are usually about expressing an opinion without thinking of the audience that are receiving the opinion and how they form ideas about me. I live in a world of NDAs, of non-disclosure agreements. So I'm used to being under a regime of having to watch what I say. But at the same time, I mean, sometimes you just get mad. And I would say that's where I need to, you know, mend the filter is sometimes I, you know, might speak out a turn or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, the thing is, every time you do it, you learn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the best thing your friends can do for you is give you feedback privately. Yeah, feedback is such a gift, isn't it? It is. And especially if they're your peers telling you and being more open to vulnerabilities. You also adapt and everyone adapts, right? Like, 10 years ago, I can't imagine somebody talking about their, their struggles with depression on True. a public. And now you can talk about something like that. And people are like, you're so brave. Good for you. Yeah, I've struggled with that as well. I'm nodding my head. Sorry, I just had to jump in and say it's I interviewed Nicole German, who founded the Maddie Project, and it's hashtag shine bright. And her daughter died of suicide. And she's all about talking about it, talking about mental health and, and, you know, inviting the kid who lives three doors down, who always seems to be alone over for dinner and talking about mental health openly within your house and with your friends. And it's amazing. It's, that's an interesting point. It's not just generally that we are becoming more transparent. Maybe the filter is widening for the younger generations, right? But also there are topics, specific topics that we are much more open about than we used to be. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Like they're affecting us all. They're moving it. They're moving it up the generations. And so there's your there's your positive effect of people being more open and more vulnerable. I mean, that's that's wonderful. It is. So I attended uh, an online women in leadership conference recently and at the beginning of the conference, there was a keynote speech by this amazing woman who I believe is in her 60s. And she's, you know, at the pinnacle of her career, of anyone's career. This woman is absolutely phenomenal. And she made a comment that really stuck with me. Someone asked her a question that's similar to the topic that we're talking about right now, about authenticity and bringing your whole self to work. And her response was, I encourage you to use authenticity as your superpower. Mm. Yeah. And she's, she's like, you know, in her 60s, like I said, what do you think of that? Making actually your transparency part of your brand. And that's fantastic. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking so much now about empathy. You know, empathy at one point would have been seen as weakness. And now empathy is seen as strength. Empathy right. is seen as a superpower. Empathy is something that brands, which aren't living things, desperately wish they could convey. That's a great point. You're reminding me of uh, Brene Brown and all the vulnerability stuff, right? And she said that when she talks to some people on the airplane about what she does, and she would say, well, I'm a a researcher and I study vulnerability. And depending on the person and whether they're familiar with her and with the construct, they, they either think that vulnerability is this negative thing to be avoided, right? Or it's a strength. And because her whole thing is about it takes courage to be vulnerable, and there are so many benefits to it. So, it depends on a variety of factors, right? It depends on your personality, depends on your profession. And to your point from the very beginning, it depends on your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because I mean, um, every time, I don't know when I first heard the term personal branding. I, I think it was probably 15 years ago or something like that. I, I mean, can tell you when it was 19, 
97 front cover of Fast Company magazine. The brand you article by Tom Peters. I can guarantee it. That's <laughs> I remember that. So it was I longer yeah. ago. Wow. So, you know, the idea of what a corporate or a product brand is has changed a lot over the years. Where where we got to, I think, which was a good place, which is a brand is like a person. The the term I'm going to use is really nerdy, but in evolutionary biology, they talk about exaptations. So an adaptation is when evolutionarily, you know, you have posable thumbs. An exaptation is when something that you developed for a different purpose is repurposed. Okay. okay. Love so, that word. So exaptation, it's outside, right? So an exaptation that branding does is we have this, this built-in software that lets you read other people. So you and I are talking to each other and we're giving each other visual cues. And there are books about how to read body language, but the fact is that it's our operating system. Yep. So what a brand wants to do is a brand wants to appear to your social instincts as if it's a person. As much as a big brand like Coca-Cola can say, you know, oh, we taste really good. No, it's, it's the brand. It's an old friend. So the acceptation, what brands are doing is they're tricking our brains into thinking that they are people. What we do when we create a brand is we're actually creating an artificial personality. And so that's why I find it kind of ironic where we've gone full circle to saying personal branding. As I, I said to you on LinkedIn, I'm just myself. This is me. I'm, you know, I'm getting older and I'm getting wiser, I hope. But, you know, I'm also limited by being older. You know, my son cringes if I try to use his slang and stuff. But the brand just happens. The personal brand just happens. The question is, are you the same when you're talking to one-on-one uh, -on -one to a friendly person or a group of people? Or are you talking to a group who you don't know and you don't see? And how do you brand towards them? And that's bringing it full circle to that's what advertising does, right? That's what branding does. You, but it's, it's like doubly blind because you're, you're creating an artificial personality to appeal to a bunch of people you can't see. <laughs> you know, you have research on them. But um, anyway, I'm getting a little esoteric here, but it's very relevant to me. I mean, the bottom line is you have this in you to refine your personal mm -hmm. brand, mm -hmm. to filter your personal brand, to make your personal brand work for you. A lot of it is just gaining the confidence to understand not only who you are, but how other people see you. So, I mean, it, maybe it just seems too easy to me because this is what I've done for a living. But I also think that people can learn this. I think that people can learn these insights and take them away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those of us in advertising, it's a lot easier because we're used to seeing this. We're used to doing this. But anyone can benefit from it. Think in terms of the audience, always the audience. So I have to say, again, I think that that general message is so inspiring. I know from talking to some clients, particularly younger clients, I would say, who feel overwhelmed about establishing their personal brand. And you need to think about filtering what you're communicating based on your audience and particularly pay attention to code switching across the generations. And when you were talking about stereotypes and, you know, there's pros and cons. And I, I was thinking, I, I say this all the time to my kids, like you wouldn't survive if you didn't stereotype to some extent. So stereotyping is not really a bad thing. It's helping you judge the situation and how you should act and what you should do. Discrimination is bad. That's different, right? I think that that's really empowering. I wanted to ask you about my working definition that I have for personal branding. So um, okay. 
if I'm starting off a workshop, I say, so what is personal branding? You can think of it very simply as identity management or reputation management, but it's really what people think and say about you when you're not in the room. 100%. So how does that relate then to product brands? Is it the same thing? What people think and say about the brand when, well, the brand could be in the room or not actually, right? <laughs> well, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I've been in a lot of focus groups. Uh, if anyone's ever attended or uh, on either side of the glass of focus group, people sit in a room with a one-way mirror. They can't see the people watching them. The client, the agency, the, you know, the, the market research firm are in a darkened room watching the focus group. The focus group know they're being watched. And there's a moderator who goes in and asks them the question. So we, people have seen this on TV. Even people not in advertising can visualize this. What they don't know is that when the moderator leaves the room, the agency especially get right up close so they can hear what people say when the moderator's not in the room. Yeah. We get our best insights. And it might sound creepy, but we live in a world of social listening. Yeah. And when the moderator's not in the room is when people speak the truth. Oh. That's an overstatement, but you know what I mean? People speak in an unperformative way. At least they're not performing for the moderator. And it's really interesting because sometimes they realize the agency's on the other side of the glass, but they forget we're there. So when the moderator's not in the room, they don't realize we're listening. And that's when they start to say, oh boy, is that ever terrible? Like what yeah. the hell were they thinking? Yeah. And this is good stuff to hear, right? You're saying Yeah, this is, this is the best feedback. I, I actually remember that happening. I, being in you know with the dark room on the other yeah. side of the one-way glass and looking in and you know you can almost like snap your fingers and say oh they forgot we're here listen to what they're saying <laughs> they totally forget you're there i mean it's just like in psychology right you don't want to you know you're trying not to affect the the subjects but so you could make that a metaphor and say that your personal brand is what they say when the moderator is not in the room. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's I'm going to use that. You're, you're oh, go some for great it. quotes here. So I have one more question to ask you before we get yeah. into the five rapid fire questions. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. You may have heard me say this, or you may have seen that I wrote this, that it occurred to me when I was thinking and writing about personal branding, that personal branding is very similar to actually your credit rating. Mm, yes. I heard you say that. Yeah. Yeah. So because of the fact that it exists, whether you manage it proactively or not, that people have access to it. They have access to your personal brand, obviously, and they have access to your, or institutions have access to your credit rating, and that you can choose to strategically manage it or not. What do you think about that metaphor? I guess it's not a metaphor, it's an analogy. It's an analogy. And I can give you, I can give you a marketing equivalent because, you know, you were there too. I was there. We, we got to actually shepherd clients onto social media. And there was a real reluctance to go on social media because the culture is that any criticism is bad. So what we always said to them, they're already talking about you. Don't you want to be there? So, yeah. so that's yeah. like the credit score. It's like, yeah, reputation exists. People have mm -hmm. opinions of you. The most, you know, the, the, the quiet person who doesn't talk to anyone, their neighbors still talk about them. Yeah, that's true. Oh my gosh, I love all these points. And you also reminded me of Googling yourself and how particularly yeah. older, again, back to your code switching across the generations, older people, oh, I would never Google myself. That's what narcissists do. And I'm like, other people are Googling you, you know, in a professional context. I know that when I meet people, they're Googling me, right? So you got to manage your digital footprint, even beyond oh, yeah. social media. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I have a. I've had a Google News alert set for myself for over ten years. Good and, for you. Uh, oh yeah, well, but you know, shout out to Tom Meganson of Yorkshire. I get all of his as well. <laughs> That's yeah, funny. connected. That's funny. Okay, we're going to move on now to the five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yes. First question: What are your pet peeves? Um, I'm a creative person. My pet peeve is really bad writing, and I don't mean spelling mistakes. I mean. Poor communication online. When people aren't expressing themselves well, I wish I could help them. Okay, question number two. What type of learner are you? I'm self-taught. I actually dropped out of university, taught myself to do what I do. I learn by reading and I learn by listening and I especially learn by conversation. Wow, that's impressive. Question number three, are you an introvert or an extrovert? This is a really funny one. So a few years ago, I was uh, having a catch-up coffee with a very good friend of mine who told me she was very introvert. And I said, you're introverted. We've always been really open with each other. And she said, well, my husband says you're an introvert if your idea of relaxing is to be by yourself. If your idea of relaxing is to be with other people, you're an extrovert. And I said, oh, geez. Because I'm really comfortable around people, around strangers, whatever, but I need my me time. So maybe I'm both. So here's the question. Where do you get your energy from? Or maybe an easier question to answer is, do you feel more drained when you spend the day alone? Or do you feel more drained after you come back from, you know, a big dinner party or something? Oh, definitely the latter. I mean, it takes a lot of psychic energy to be on, especially most of my socializing has a, a business aspect to it. So we were talking about those filters. They're exhausting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to diagnose you as a social introvert. You are introverted because you get your energy from being alone in your thoughts, right? But you do enjoy the company of people and you're not shy. Yeah, that totally works. I mean, just think about how many actors and stand-up comedians are incredibly insecure. I don't consider myself insecure, but I do need my alone time. Oh, interesting. Okay. Question number four, communication preference for personal conversations. Well, I would say that I always prefer face-to-face. -face. I'm, I'm most comfortable face-to-face -face for all the reasons I told you about, you know, just being able to really connect with a person. However, I've gotten very used to text. I think I like either texting, personal message. I like writing. I like communicating with people and writing. I don't spend a lot of time on the phone anymore. I call my, I talk to my mom on the phone. Last question. Is there a podcast, a blog, or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most lately? It's really hard to say. I don't, I'm not a follower. I don't subscribe to any blogs or newsletters. I've written blogs. I've written for podcasts. I've done all this stuff, but I, I don't actually subscribe to anyone. I allow my network to curate it for me. Oh. Um, so, you know, people will say, did you hear this podcast? This one's really good. So I'll listen to that one. The nice thing about that is I don't get locked in. Yeah, but, that's true. Uh, that's true. But I will subscribe to yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I, that question is not meant to be fishing for subscriptions, no. honestly. honestly. I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to add about TMI or anything? Not really. I mean, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, I just really, really enjoyed talking to you here today. I mean, we, you know, you talk about uh, conversation and learning, and this is exactly the thing I like to do. So thank you very much for your time and, and for putting me on your uh, on your podcast. Okay, I was supposed to thank you first. But Tom, uh, the feelings mutual. I, I love this conversation because I learned I did learn a lot and new, new perspective on TMI and authenticity. And it was great. And I hope we can stay connected. Fantastic. Me too. What an amazing conversation. 
You could probably tell that I really enjoyed that interview. Thanks again to Tom. And thanks to Tom, I have a new word. Exaptation, as in an adaptation with a new purpose. Exaptation is a trait or a feature of an organism or a taxonomy that takes on a new purpose. An example that comes up frequently to illustrate exaptation is bird feathers, which were originally evolved for temperature regulation, and then they enabled flight. Whoa, how did we end up in an evolutionary biology lesson? Well, Tom introduced us to the idea of product and personal branding coming full circle. Marketers were using human traits to personify their brands, and now we humans are adopting brand marketing frameworks to develop our personal brand. Yes, we have definitely come full circle. So now let me summarize this episode with three key insights for us to consider. First, code switching. Second, filtering. And third, this relevance to product branding. But the meta theme here, the one key takeaway, is to consider your audience. When you're consciously communicating your personal brand, for example, when you're in an important meeting or when your boss's boss asks, how's everything going? Consider your audience. Then code switch and filter as appropriate. So the first key insight is code switching. We do this automatically all the time anyway. In a professional context, we talk with our boss differently than we might talk with a client. And personally, we talk with our parents differently than we talk with our kids. I love Tom's point about code switching across generations. He highlighted that based on demographic and psychographic research, there are stereotypes associated with the various generational cohorts. From the formal silent generation to the cooler but conformist baby boomers, to the cynical Gen Xers, to the protected millennials, to the inspiration and validation seeking Gen Zs. Tom highlighted that there is no right or wrong culture. And in fact, the younger generations are affecting us in positive ways, like encouraging us to talk about some critical, previously taboo topics, like mental health. So, depending on which generational cohort you're communicating with, you might want to code switch. This code switching may affect the topics you discuss, the formality of your communication, and even the medium. Older folks may prefer the phone or face-to-face, and younger folks may prefer some media that, frankly, I haven't even heard of. And that reminds me, we code switch. We share different parts of our personal brand, depending on which social media platform we're on, right? We share different things on LinkedIn versus what we share on TikTok. Of course. But what we share is all true to us. It's authentic. And that's where the second key insight comes in. Filtering. Again, this point relates to understanding your audience. Let's back up. We are complicated beings. We have many interests, hobbies, circles of friends, personality traits, and so on. By leveraging this concept of filtering our personal brand, we can be authentic. We don't change who we are. We're filtering what part of us we're sharing with different audiences. When Tom made this point about filtering, I realized that TMI, the too much information, is actually a bit of a misnomer because it's not about quantity, It's about the substance or the content of the information. And we filter out what's not appropriate for the context, for that audience. Tom says that the number one question to keep in mind is, is this relevant to my audience? He also reminded us, thankfully, that we can mend our filter. When we speak out of turn, when we realize we just said something we shouldn't have, 
when we receive feedback, we can mend that filter, adjust it. As Tom said, of course, the thing is, every time you do it, you learn. And now, the third and last point here is how we can leverage insights and frameworks from product branding to personal branding. Of course, I knew this. I worked for years in brand management and I've conducted research in consumer psychology, but Tom definitely added some intriguing new insights. To start with, an important distinction between product and personal brands. Product brands are constructed, obviously, right? Well, actually, some would say that brands are co-created, but I digress. The point here is that when it comes to personal brands, here's what Tom said. I don't think we construct our personal brand. What we do is we filter it. That's a really important differentiation for me. You know, I try to be authentic all the time, but I definitely filter myself. This might be one of the most important points from this episode. If you're thinking about your personal brand, seeking authenticity, considering whether something is appropriate to share, think of filtering which elements of your authentic self you want and need to share with that audience. And there's more in terms of the relevance of product branding. As someone who's been in advertising and copywriting for 30 years, Tom shared how he's always thinking about his audience, and specifically, an audience that he can't see. Because in advertising, you're speaking on behalf of a brand, you're speaking on behalf of a company, and you're always thinking about your target market. This is a core principle of product branding. Tom also brought up how advertisers sometimes try to make people feel somewhat uncomfortable. They seek to get consumers out of their comfort zone and maybe to try something new. In personal branding, I've heard this articulated in terms of creating attention, highlighting something that's unexpected, unique, and certainly memorable. Take, for example, the irreverent personas of some social media influencers. This is a great point. Also from the world of product branding, I love Tom's point about focus groups. When the brand managers and the ad agency folks are listening from behind the one-way glass, the deep, truly valid insights are what's said when the moderator leaves the room and the focus group participants are brutally honest. So, our truly authentic personal brands are what people say when the moderator's not in the room. At a broader level, Tom also mentioned how it's all come full circle. As the world of brand management has become more sophisticated, marketers treat their brands like people, personifying them with values and traits and encouraging consumers to adopt relationships with brands, similar to how they have relationships with people. Meanwhile, here we are, as humans, now adopting brand management and product brand practices to help us craft our personal brands. Yep, we have definitely come full circle. Let me finish now with this quote from Tom that sums up much of our conversation. He said, quote, you have this in you to refine your personal brand, to alter your personal brand, to make your personal brand work for you. A lot of it is just gaining the confidence to understand not only who you are, but how other people see you. It may just seem too easy for me because I've been doing this for a living, but I also think that people can learn this. Those of us in advertising, it's a lot easier because we're used to doing this but anyone can benefit from it. Think in terms of the audience. Always the audience. Well said, Tom. These are the words of a wise messaging strategist. And that's it. I hope these personal branding insights were helpful. Please let me know. 
And if you think listening to this episode might help your friends or colleagues, I really hope you'll forward it to them. There's a lot here to remember, but you can always access the summary if you go to talkabouttalk.com and click on podcasts. There's a printable summary for you right there, plus the transcript. And while you're there, I really hope you'll sign up for the Talk About Talk newsletter. This is your chance to get free communication skills coaching every week in a simple to digest email. I promise, no spam and no more than once a week. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to sign up, or you can email me directly and I'll add you to the list. You can email me anytime at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Thank you.